0: gospel with your neighbors. There is something good and I think even appropriate this morning about the stillness and silence of worship. We were reminded uh, in a number of places of scripture, Ecclesiastes being one of them, (laughs) that um, God is in heaven and we are on earth and therefore to be silent before him. That's a good thing, I think, for our hearts to meditate on. Uh, This morning, I want us to look and meditate upon a particular kind of silence, the silence of death, and we'll see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and in fact, I'm going to start reading in chapter 6, verse 12, Ecclesiastes 6, verse 12, verses 1 through 12. Daniel, you'll need your Bible. (laughs) Ecclesiastes 6, 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him and under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, in the day of death than the day of birth it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise To hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and the bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, Why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is God's living and active word, and let's go to him now and ask him for his help as we seek to understand it. Our Father, we do thank you for this time and We thank You, Lord, that our worship is not so much something we do to bend Your ear towards us. Lord, we are grateful, grateful for Your grace that worship is something You do within our midst. It is a truth that You have engaged us by the power and grace of Your Spirit and enabled us to behold and see the beauty of Christ and equipped us to sing with voices and to now hear your word spoken to us. And so we pray, Father, that as we hear your word in this text, Lord, you would speak to us, and you would guide us, and you would give us wisdom from above. Help us to repent of our sins, and help us by faith to cling to Christ, in whose name we come now. Amen. Uh, Before becoming a Christian, I, uh, I had on my... Desk at home, this was in high school, a little statue of a, of a Buddha that I'd gotten uh, from a quick trip to Hong Kong. And I thought, this will be neat. I'll, I'll get this Buddha, and I put it on my desk. And it was there, and I looked at it every day as I did my homework, thinking about huh, what, is, what is this Buddha, and, and perhaps deriving some kind of uh, encouragement from it. But in 2001, when I became a Christian, Uh, And incidentally enough, when I read through Ecclesiastes as one of the first books as a Christian, uh, I became immediately convicted I ought not to have an idol staring at my face on my desk. And so uh, in my young and uh, newfound fervor, I I chucked the Buddha. Uh, I don't feel bad for that. I've replaced that Buddha now in my older years with a skull, which sits on my desk now looking at me. Every day when I read and write and work and study is a skull reminding me that life is brief. If Buddha was meant to remind me that there is kind of a reincarnation and life keeps on going, I think more biblically, a skull reminds me that life is short. There's a brevity and a futility to it. And as I stare at that skull, I'm reminded to make the best use of my time now. Thinking about death is a godly practice. The inevitable uh, inevitable reality of ever-looming death staring us in the face, I think, is a good thing we want to put before us. What's better? To live our lives thinking about and anticipating death? I think yes. Or, do you think maybe, I don't know, it's a bit Mormon, to live now in denial of such a reality? Living only for the now, right? YOLO. How do you live now? You live it up. Solomon asks this kind of question in the text that we've just read. And and he asks it back in verse 12 of chapter 6. Look there again. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? I think those questions back in chapter 6 controls everything we're going to think about and read about in chapter 7. He unpacks and he answers these questions. The first question deals with how to live wisely during this brief and vain life. What's the best and wisest way to live now? And the second question deals with with what comes after life. What will happen after you die? How do I live now and how do I prepare for life after death? I think that's what we see answered for us in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7. What I think Solomon wants to show is the value and the wisdom of wrestling with death. For Solomon here, once we we grasp the big idea, the big picture of Ecclesiastes, that life in this fallen world eludes our control, it it escapes our understanding, then the big question becomes, how should I now live? How should we live? When we realize that we can't explain everything, that we can't control everything, When our loved ones become sick and die. When we can't really make sense of why God would allow this bad thing to happen. Once we accept that, that there's rampant injustice, oppression that makes no sense, oppression that's unfair, that the helpless get taken advantage of, and so often there's no one in power really to stand up for the weak, what do we do? How do we live? What we see is that there is mainly two options before us. The first option is to try and flee reality. Somehow we escape from the pain of this world and and numb ourselves in order to avoid life's problems. Bars, clubs, restaurants, Sunday morning brunch across America, which is filled with these types of people uh, using mimosas and Bloody Marys to fog out the reality of life's futility. We party hard as we can laugh and and laugh as loud as we want in order to drown out that constant humming reminder that all of this ends in death. I don't want to think about that. Let's go to brunch. But the other option, in contrast to the escapism of option one, is true wisdom. True wisdom, says Solomon, is to live life with death Constantly before our eyes, not escaping its reality, but better still, preparing for it and for what comes after. That's what I think Solomon means when he says, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, do you not know that there's a reality awaiting you after our time here under the sun? Wisdom says, live life now in light of that future, unsure reality. that's what Solomon will teach us here. He wants to show us mainly two things. First, the wisdom of looking at death. The wisdom of looking at death. And I think we see that in verses 1 through 6. And then secondly, the wisdom of preparing for death. The wisdom of preparing for death in verses 7 through 12. He begins by telling us a proverb in verse 1. See that there? A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of birth. In the Bible, precious ointment is a good and often very costly thing. But according to Solomon, a name is far better than the finest perfume. If a precious ointment gives a person a pleasing aroma, so much more does a good name give an even better aroma. Many of you might be thinking, well, that's, that's just common sense. Of course a good name is better than a bottle of the best Yves Saint Laurent. But honestly, how many people today really believe this? Wouldn't you say that countless multitudes don't necessarily strive after having a good name as they do so much strive toward having good looks, smelling good, good pictures on their Instagram and Facebook? What Solomon begins us thinking about is the truth that someone cultivating an honorable name is far more honorable than cultivating someone's appearance. That's just good biblical wisdom. But it's Solomon's next line that really gets us thinking deeply. A good name is better than precious precious ointment. Sure, we follow you there, Solomon. But the day of death is better than the day of birth? What strange ointments has Solomon been smelling? We don't get that. Notice what he's getting at. I think he's getting us to consider... By turning us slowly and, and to start, start getting us to think about and considering the importance of death. He wants us to start realizing that there's real wisdom in meditating upon our death. And he's making the connection here with a good name because it's precisely at the day of death where someone's name really matters. That's where a good name counts, right? On the day of someone's birth, you, you give a baby his or her name, But there's no substance behind that name, at least not yet. There's only the raw potentiality of that baby's life, ready to play out, and for that child to grow into a man or a woman, and and then their decisions, their actions, will determine whether or not they have a good and noble name. Names carry weight based upon how people have worn those names, right? I did a quick search on Google yesterday. You can... Do these like baby graphs to see the popularity of a name throughout history? And I looked up the name Adolf. After the 1940s, no one is naming their child Adolf. A name carries weight. So what Solomon is teaching us here is that when it comes to a name, the day of death is better than the day of birth. When a baby is born, there's virtually nothing we can say about that child beyond, wow, how very cute. Or or she looks just like her mother. But fast forward some 80 years to the day of that child's death. What would we say then? Oh, she was so like Jesus. Oh, how he loved his family so well. He served his community with selflessness and, and charity. Or perhaps you'd, you'd hear something a bit different. Oh, how she loved to party. Oh, man, he really made a lot of money in his life. What Solomon is saying here is that the day of death is better because it's it's a better teacher for us now. When life is beginning to come to an end, everything that matters begins to come into sharper focus, doesn't it? The things that don't really matter but which we gave so much attention towards. Oh, it seems so empty and pointless in the face of death. Christians, I wonder how much more we'd pray as a people if we were sufficiently meditating, not only on the shortness of this life, but on how absolutely beautiful and perfect and wonderful heaven will be in the afterlife. I'm often thinking of that confusing statement in Revelation where we're told that Christ will wipe away the tears of all those who enter heaven. Why are they crying in heaven? I'm tempted to think that perhaps they see for the first time how beautiful and weighty and magnificent heaven really is, that for the first time they realized, oh, I should have prayed so much more for my unbelieving friends. I had no idea how great this was going to be. This is exactly why I think Solomon says in the next two verses, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living, they will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Look forward with wisdom and a bit of courage, says Solomon. Don't be a fool and and try and escape life's agonies through parties and, and laughter. Don't be a fool and try and avoid the scariness of death by drowning your fears in alcohol. Look forward to the day of your death and ask yourself, What kind of name will I have? When I die, more importantly, what kind of name will I carry with me into judgment after I die? Because a good name is better than precious ointment, especially after you die. Will you have a name that carries with it the aroma of the name of Jesus Christ? Will your life be attached to the name of Jesus Christ as you cross over into death and stand before the judgment seat of his almighty Father? Or will you only carry with you your own name because, you know, you did life your own way? You know why Solomon says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting? Because at a funeral, at the house of mourning, we are made to stare death in the face. And when that happens, the, the brevity and the futility of life is made more real. And, and now you begin to realize that the decisions you make, well, they take on more weight. No one is thinking about death at a party. And if all of life is just one big party and you're never thinking about death, well, then you're never properly preparing for death. And don't be a fool, says Solomon. Don't stick your head in the sand in order to avoid the unavoidable. Do you see what Solomon says in verse 4? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. There are so many who are always partying, Always having fun. And the sad reality is that they lack the wisdom to stop and to take seriously the reality of their ever-impending death. Friends, death is right around the corner for each and every one of us. No one knows if today's the day. It very well could be. Are you prepared? What kind of name are you taking with you into death? Have you thought about this before? Will you start thinking about it now? These verses are reminding us that, yes, life is limited by death. Our lives will not go on forever. But death is not just a a line we cross before we enter into the afterlife. No, death is seen here as a kind of evangelist. Death looks us in the eyes and, and asks us to stare back at it and to be moved by what we see. Death is the most serious of preachers, but with such a simple message. His sermon... It matters, now more than ever, where you'll end up after you die. Again, what kind of name are you taking with you into death? This is why Solomon adds in verses 5 and 6 that it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the, the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. In other words... The wise person lives in anticipation of death and is intentionally and consistently considering life's most important questions. But fools, they just give themselves to avoiding death. It's fools who go on singing the happy songs of whatever's popular on the radio. It's the foolish who can't stop laughing at all the jokes and, and laughing at all the comedy shows because you know, once the laughing stops... And the idea of all of this life is going to end and you know what? I have a strange feeling that I have to give an account for what I've done with my life. That thought becomes too much to bear. And so we just go on singing and we keep on laughing to keep from crying. If you've ever burned a pile of thorns, you'll notice that they burn high and they burn very bright. And the sound they make is this distinct kind of cackling, um, crackling noise that sounds almost like the cackling of laughter. But they also burn very quickly and are almost in a very brief moment entirely gone. Uh, There's nothing left quickly but dust, ashes, and silence. That's the image Solomon uses here to describe the vain pursuit of those who numb their hearts and try to escape from ever really thinking about death. No, better, says Solomon, our wise friends who will call you to account for the way you're living your life. It's better to take seriously the rebuke of Jesus who says in Luke 6.25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall then in the day of judgment mourn and weep. The Bible tells us that there is a day appointed for everyone to die. And then immediately comes judgment. So what do we do with this? We see that we need to think about death. We need to keep death always before us and not try and escape from its ever-looming reality. But, but how? What does it look like to rightly prepare for death and to live wisely now in light of eternity? What Solomon does in the rest of this passage is show us, I think, two divergent paths. Verses 7 through 12 show us a kind of fork in the road, as it were. Will we live life as fools or will we seek wisdom? He begins with what is admittedly a very difficult verse to understand there in verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and the bribe corrupts the heart. But better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. That phrase, patient in spirit, I think is the central concept here to help us understand. In other words, we all face temptations towards impatience. We're all tempted towards impatience. And in this life where we're constantly tempted to check out and and distract ourselves with the latest and greatest entertainment, bribes, you know, making a lot of money quickly without much effort, and usually as long as you look the other way or help somebody do something immoral, bribes become an easy way and an impatient way to dip our toes into the good life. It's a quick fix, which Solomon says, and only fools partake in it because they're not thinking about eternity. People who take bribes are only thinking about the here and now, and they're not thinking about God. What Solomon is saying in verses 7 and 8 is that even a bribe can be a temptation to to the wisest among us. Something the wise men would normally view as madness, he says. But we're to be reminded that the end of a thing is always better than its beginning. Therefore, be patient, says Solomon. In other words, when oppression or any kind of suffering befalls a person, there's always two ways to deal with it. You could, A, succumb to the demands of the immediacy, concerning yourself only with what hurts here and now, oh, it's so bad, and in patience do the unthinkable, even take a bribe to escape your suffering. Or, B, in wisdom and in patience, you can understand that the end of a trial usually ends much differently than how it began. Wait. Consider. And don't rush to find a quick fix. Don't take a bribe to ease your pain. Now, the wise man considers the end of it all, and he says, what am I going to do with this ill-gotten money? Am I going to line my coffin with it at death? Am I going to try and bribe my way out of eternal judgment? You see what Solomon is introducing here? It's the truth that even before death, all people suffer. There's oppression. All people undergo hardships and trials and experiences of severe, excruciating pain. But here's the point. All these trials serve as a kind of litmus test to see who, in light of death and in light of eternity, respond wisely or respond foolishly. In other words, Solomon is echoing the words of James chapter 1 where James tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect upon you, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. The truth is that when trials come to those who are foolish, those people who avoid thoughts of eternity, well, then trials don't produce steadfastness. They don't produce life. Now These trials expose the fool for who he is and, and showcase the path he's already chosen as he marches on towards eternal death. The fool, in verse 9, responds to a trial not with thanksgiving and wisdom, but with anger. He doesn't see his personal trial as something from the hand of God, something which's meant to, to sanctify him and, and to strengthen him, a trial which is meant to prepare him for eternity. No, unlike the wise men, he responds in anger. Why have you done this, God? I don't deserve this kind of life. I don't deserve this pain. And I hate the God that's allowed it to happen. Now Solomon teaches us in verse 9 that the wise should not be quick to become angry because anger lodges in the heart of fools. Perhaps more appropriate for us today is the wisdom we're given in verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Closely related to losing our temper, Solomon brings up the foolishness of living in the past. As we complain about the present and all the pain that the present is exerting upon us, we we tend to idolize and kind of airbrush and romanticize the past. For Solomon, nostalgia of this sort is nauseating. Nostalgia is a kind of a virtual reality, an escape from the trials of the present. It exalts the kind of half-remembered memories of the past, a past which in reality was not as great as you really remember it to be, in order to justify your anger at the present. This kind of nostalgia, Solomon says, is absolute foolishness. Don't we see nostalgia so much today? Looking at myself here those more uh, Reformed and Calvinistic-leaning Christians who always seem to be living in the 17th century, reading their Puritans and always reading Calvin and Luther. And if I'm being honest, I'm sometimes tempted to think, ah, how great would have it been to be around back then with these great theological giants? But Solomon says, don't be a fool. There's one dear brother of mine, exclaimed earlier to to me this week, he's a young black guy who himself loves the Puritans as much as I do, but he said, yeah, but back then I probably would have been a slave to one of those beloved Puritans. The past really isn't as glorious as we always think it is. Folks are always yearning to make their lives, their church, or even their country great again. Solomon is telling us to think more wisely than that. Maybe the past was better, Maybe something was a little bit more pristine back then than it is now. But when you start asking, how can I get those days back? What you're doing is denying the reality of God's presence in the present. If you think things are certainly getting worse, would you think God is no longer in control? Now, wisdom embraces God's sovereignty, even when life gets bad. Now That's what Solomon's point is in verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. God is in control. God has has you right where he wants you, with your sufferings and trials and all. Wisdom says, yes, God, it's painful right now, but I know it's good for me in the end your trials that you're allowing me to walk through, it's grace upon grace, molding me now more into the image of Christ, etching Christ's name into my life with the sharpness of each trial that you bring to bear upon me so that I might be at the end more fit and prepared for eternity. Do you see? Solomon is still preparing us for death, still moving us to consider life after death. And here's how Solomon concludes his argument. Seek wisdom in the midst of trials. See that in verses 11 and 12? Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In other words, this is almost exactly what the book of James later tells us to do in the midst of trials. When you meet trials of various kinds, here's what you do, says James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives wisdom generously to all without reproach, and that wisdom will be given to him. Blessed is the man who in wisdom remains steadfast and perseveres through trials, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. When trials come and you're tempted to despair, go to God and pray. Specifically, ask God for wisdom. If the trial is something God has ordained in your life, don't don't pray, God, get me out of this trial quick, quick. It hurts. No, There's something meant for you in that trial. Pray, God, give me wisdom. Help me in wisdom to walk through this trial with the long view and goal. Give me wisdom to see your smiling hand of providence in the midst of this dark storm. Protect wisdom, says Solomon, precisely because it preserves the life of him who has it. It's the wise who know how to navigate life's deep and difficult waters. It's the wise who know the advantage of patience and to not losing your temper and to not escaping to the nostalgia of the past. Ideally, it's the wise who know that a funeral is better than a wedding because living life in light of death prepares us to withstand and And persevere through all the trials God has placed in our paths. I want to be clear here as we come to an end. Trials and suffering, and especially death, it's hard. It's not good, it's not fun. Solomon's not asking us to put on a fake smile and and to walk through suffering and to deal with death like it's just a walk in the park. But death is too heavy a thing to be merely happy about. You're happy at a birthday party. You're happy when you've eaten a good plate of food. But there's no real depth to happiness. No wisdom here is calling us to have joy. We want to affirm, along with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, that in this life, we are sorrowful. We're sorrowful because of all the suffering and the trials that we go through. But we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Christians, biblical wisdom is having hope in death, even as it's mingled with all the sorrow and sadness of suffering. We don't live in denial of death. Christians, above all other people, actually live in anticipation of death. In an ironic way, we affirm again with the Apostle Paul that to live is Christ, but to die, that's gain. Death, for us, is the end of the road where all suffering ceases. And we enter finally into joy everlasting. We sang earlier from Psalm 16, bliss shall I know at your hands forevermore. But we need to be clear here. Living now with our eyes set upon death. That's not morbid. It's wise. On the contrary, what characterizes a person who lives like like this is depth, I think. They have depth of soul. They have a depth of character. It's the man who lives in denial of death, always seeking to be happy, always seeking to squeeze everything he can out of life now. It's that guy who lives the superficial life, unaware and oblivious to the fullness of life that only comes with Christ. Friends, I want you to know for certain that death is bad. Death is the result of sin, the punishment for our rebellion against God. All sinners experience death. We experience spiritual death. We will all experience physical death. And then finally, there is the judgment of eternal death. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is a thief and an enemy to us. Death takes our loved ones away. Death casts a shadow of pain and sorrow over every one of us acquainted with lost loved ones. Death mocks us. Death wakes us up at 4 a.m. in the morning to remind us of how foolish we've been that day. Death was not a part of God's original creation. Mankind was not created to die and taste death. Death is what happens when sin runs rampant. Death is cruel. Death is the fruit of war. Death results when people fear one another and hate each other. And I want to be clear. Death is not our friend. Paul tells us that death is our enemy, the last enemy. But, we look now to Jesus Christ, who is the apostle who wrote Hebrews told us, for the joy that was set before him endured death, despising the shame that comes with death. Consider Jesus, the author of life himself, who out of love for us entered into our reality and partook in all the pain and all the suffering and all the sadness of our existence, and who walked obediently, trusting in his Father's sovereign hand of goodness, succumbing entirely unto death. Jesus Christ died. Grasp that. The Son of God died. Have you ever considered how Jesus thought of death? I think the Garden of Gethsemane is one interesting picture and insight into his thoughts. There in that night before he was about to stand trial and be condemned to die that excruciating death upon the cross, he went within that garden of Gethsemane to pray. And his prayers were described there as intense and agonizing, where it's said that he he even sweat drops of blood. He even asked the Father if this cup, the cup of entering into death, could be removed from him. I think Calvin is right when he says that for Jesus, it wasn't the simple horror of death that made Jesus to tremble but rather the sight of the dreadful tribunal of God. It was the sight of God as judge, armed as God was with all vengeance and justice against sinners beyond all understanding. This is why death's fearful abyss tormented Jesus. Jesus, who knew God the Father perfectly, who also knew what true judgment looked like from God perfectly. And there was nothing more dreadful for Jesus than to experience God as his judge. His wrath is worse than a million deaths. And so when the reality of Jesus' death was now staring Him in the face, and that upon the cross He would be counted as a sinner, seen as one of us in all our rebellious disobedience, and now that the God of eternity would be against Him, yes, this caused Jesus to shudder in fear. I think this is why He sweat drops of blood. And yet, the reality is that Jesus went to that cross willingly, and as a perfect, sinless son. His entrance into the horror of death was out of love for you and out of obedience to the Father. And Paul tells us that Jesus' death was not a foul stench before God like our deaths are, but rather a pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God, which is why death could not hold our Savior down. Death could not conquer our King. Death, as much as it tried to strangle and snuff out the creator and author of life, was left instead with his own humiliating defeat. When Jesus, three days later, got back up out of the grave, he did so with death choking in his grip. Jesus' life is the death of death. Jesus, our king, with his sword firmly penetrating into death, is now looking at us and saying, Come on, come on, follow me, death can't hurt you anymore. And this is why Paul tells us death is swallowed up in victory and then mocks death by saying, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to celebrate this truth by partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to call you to do so meditating upon death in Christ and our life. Now in Him. If you're here this morning as someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been baptized and you're a member of a gospel believing church, then we welcome you gladly to join with us and commemorate and celebrate the life we've gained in the death of Christ. The bread that we're going to partake in symbolizes His broken body, the cup is a symbol of His shed blood on our account. Jesus dying to take away our sins and to take away our guilt. And we do this in obedience. We eat the bread and we drink the cup.